The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. For more details, please see A16Z.com slash disclosures. Welcome. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you so much. Excited for the conversation. I love it. I feel like we have our like weekly regulars in the crowd, like seeing the repeat names. Yeah. Hey, everyone. Happy Monday. Yeah, I love how some of these end up becoming like digital health reunions of sorts, which is super fun. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I think some of the names on you. I see Rajiv and Kaya. Uh, yep. Tons of great folks. All right. Looks like we're getting to a good mass here. Um, why don't we give it 30 more seconds and then we can get started. Ashantino, you're, you're, um, you're on the East Coast right now? I am. I okay. am. I'm, well, we appreciate, you, uh, we appreciate you making time late in the evening. No worries, as long as uh, you guys forgive any screaming children from running in the room here. <laughs> you uh, same here. <laughs> I think same all around. Yeah, that's 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 the standard disclaimer. Yeah, actually, that's like the background music for our weekly clubhouse. <laughs> Perfect. I'm in the right place. I love yeah. it. <laughs> cool. All right. Why don't we kick things off? So, thank you, everyone, for joining. Uh, good evening, and welcome to. The A16Z Bio Clubhouse Room, where we cover the future of bio and healthcare. I am Julie Yu, uh, one of the general partners here at A16Z. And with me are my partners, Jorge Conde, Vijay Pandey, and Vanita Agarwala. And uh, today we have a very special guest, um, Dr. Shantanu Nandi, who um, is many things. So currently he serves as the Chief Medical Officer at Acc of Accolade, which, uh, in which we are proud investors. Um, he is also a practicing primary care physician, which we'll hear a little bit more about as well. And uh, previously, he was with the World Bank uh, Health Group um, on nutrition and population global, uh, global health. And uh, he worked there on a number of digital health adoption initiatives at the global level. Um, he also advises the AMA and the FDA on matters related to payments and regulatory issues in, in digital health and AI. Um, Shantanu is actually a fellow MIT grad. He and I were actually classmates, but we never met because he was clearly much cooler than I and at all the better parties um, that I did not attend. Um, and he did his MD at Hopkins and his MBA from Chicago Booth. Um, and because he has um, clearly a bunch of time on his hands, uh, he decided to also write a book called Care After COVID, What the Pandemic Revealed is Broken About Healthcare and How to Reinvent It, um, which is on sale Tomorrow, is it, Shantanu? Is the, the go-live date? It, it is indeed. Amazing. And it's also already received uh, quite a bit of, of great coverage in the press, which we've seen as well. So congratulations on that. Thanks. Um, so just a quick note for those um, here and in, in, in the crowd, in case you come up later, uh, this conversation is being recorded. So um, if you do uh, chat, uh, come up on stage by doing so, you will be consenting to us using your words and your image in a recording related to this event. So um, with that, why don't we uh, go ahead and dive in? So um, first and foremost, today, uh, Shantanu, just given your purview at Accolade and, and what you're seeing across the, the digital health space, there was um, an article in the Wall Street Journal that's kind of gone viral uh, in, our, in our universe here um, about, about digital health. And uh, the title was Digital Health Startups Are Booming but um, Their Customers Are Overwhelmed. So basically um, sort of referring to the fact that 
you know, employers who are purchasing digital health benefits on behalf of their employees are seeing just a, a huge inundation of, you know, of companies, of vendors, et cetera, pitching them on, on various solutions. It's become very fragmented. Um, there are lots of competition in, in specific categories. And, and obviously, you know, you being an Accolade and, you know, Accolade being kind of this, this care navigation platform that uh, sort of sits across um, all these different care solutions. I'm, I'm sure you're, you're seeing that and, li- and living it and breathing it and, and obviously, you know, helping your customers kind of navigate that. Curious if you, if you had a chance to read that, Shantanu, and if you had a quick take um, based on, on what you've seen from your purview at Accolade in the last couple of years. Yeah, no, absolutely. I saw the piece and uh, it, it was great to actually see them highlight that issue because I think it's one that our customers uh, have, have faced for some time. And it's, I think it's, it's a huge challenge. I mean, I think, look, the positive is Right, you know, with the sort of third wave of digital health, you're seeing, you know, just just an incredible amount of innovation, uh, tons of obviously capital being raised, great solutions coming out. But if you put yourself in the shoes of a, of the benefits buyer, it, it absolutely is overwhelming, right? Uh, and I think you you see the frustrations of the brick and mortar healthcare system. Uh, you know the pain points that your employees and their families are facing. But at the same time, you know, a lot of these offices. I mean, I, I didn't realize this fully until I was at Ackley that. You know, some of these offices have you know two or three people in the HR department, right? And so for them, it is pretty overwhelming to think about all these different point solutions. Um, and so I think it's a big challenge, and I think it's one that you know we're going to have to solve if we want to you know help move employers uh, to to uh, to a better model. Yeah, given um, given the topic that we'll get into around your book and and kind of this notion of, of care after COVID, um, what would you predict are, are some of the major changes that you think will happen in the next year or so uh, with regards to the, the digital health, you know, sort of benefits play uh, in this whole domain? Yeah, I mean, I think we're going through a transition period, right? I mean, I think, you know, uh, Accolade certainly was one of the first companies to really, you know, create the idea of, of the uh, advocacy and navigation, right? The idea that sort of the one place you turn to for any health or benefits question. And, uh, and that's been, uh, you know, in a huge, exciting change over the last 10 years. I think now you're seeing sort of the, the next uh, wave uh, around, you know, the real strong interest in primary care and virtual primary care. Um, but I think to this pain point that was highlighted in the article today, I think where, uh, where employers are going to look to go is is more on what, what I call population health, right, which is taking a much more holistic view um, of, of the entire healthcare problem and trying to figure out for each person what the next best thing for them is going to be. And so I think that, that you know, all this innovation is going to really necessitate that we have a way to complement them and ultimately deliver it to individual members, but in a way that creates, you know, value for the ultimate plan sponsor. So I think that's going to be something that we see coming. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Um, so actually, that's a great segue into your, your book. Let, let's talk a little bit about um, some of the themes uh, from your book that, um, that relate to all this. So um, one of the great themes that, you know, obviously selfishly I thought uh, was, was awesome because it really aligns with some of the stuff that we've talked about and written about in the past is this notion that, you know, we're going through this great unlock um, where, you know, one of, your, one of the quotes in your book is healthcare has changed more in the past several months than perhaps at any similar period of time in recent history. It's a once in a century opportunity to reinvent healthcare. And so, um, you know, that's a, a very um, optimistic statement. I think, you know, all of us have, have sort of experienced various versions of this um, across various aspects of, of healthcare. And, um, you know, one thing that you mentioned specifically in the book as kind of another sub theme uh, is this notion of reimbursement. 
And, you know, we always talk about the fact that, you know, reimbursement is the tail that wags the dog in healthcare. Oftentimes, um, you know, even if there is the, a wonderful product or, you know, some kind of technological advancement that is, you know, created by a company, um, that innovation might not reach the mass market until there is some sort of top-down policy change that impacts reimbursement. Um, and that's where I think like the employer benefit channel has been super interesting in, in that in, it's, in some ways it has been sort of the tip of the spear of adoption around some of these new novel technologies um, before it becomes something that's sort of reimbursed through the general carrier chassis, as you say. Um, and in, in your book, you actually make a call to action to urge payers to reimburse for you know, some of the things that we saw um, get, uh, get adoption during the pandemic, things like asynchronous patient care, you know, value-based care models, um, defined contribution versus defined benefit and kind of the movement in that direction. Um, how long do you think this poll, this reimbursement poll is in your view? Um, you know, how much of that is at risk of kind of going back to the status quo pre-pandemic, um, you know, versus how much momentum do you think there will be going forward on um, specifically the reimbursement models actually, you know, staying in place and also potentially expanding going forward? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, first, I want to just comment on on your on, on the statement you made about healthcare changing more in the past several months, because I think it is optimistic, but I, I think I, I just want to underscore that with a couple data points. I think the, the first is, you know, so I get a chance to practice at a safety net clinic, meaning a clinic that takes care of um, people that are largely, you know, uninsured uh, immigrant population uh, outside of D.C. And it, it's just been incredible to see the amount of change, like on the true front lines of care, even for the most vulnerable populations. Right. So, you know, uh, I still remember walked into clinic last March and uh walked in and I, I, it was like one of those, you know, those dreams where, uh, you wake up and, uh, you're like, you're, you're in your dream and you're in your underwear and you're at school or something and everyone's laughing at you. It's like, <laughs> I walked into clinic and literally the waiting room was completely empty. And I was like, wait, what is going on here? Is this a Saturday? And cause usually my clinic's super crowded and went back to the back room and they're like, nope, we're doing all visits virtually. Here's your clinic iPhone. And yeah, your first patient's in two minutes. And just the fact that a clinic like mine is under resourced it is went from literally zero percent never had done a virtual visit before to a hundred percent and then you know over time down to eighty percent in the course of a couple of weeks is just remarkable right um the drive-through testing right like we literally have this white pitch tent uh like i can't find a place to park my car anymore because we have this white pitch tent where like, <laughs> one of my nurses standing there you know doing uh doing testing and and now we're all like well we're never going to test people during flu season inside the four walls of our clinic again. Um, using data, I mean, like we figured out how to get data out of our EHR, which you know is like impossible, and started calling patients who were high priority for the COVID vaccine. And we started proactively calling them and saying, hey, we have a COVID vaccine for you, right? So that level of change, I mean, I've been practicing the safety net now for 10 years. Like, pretty much nothing's changed in 10 years. And so I just want to create the picture that this isn't just something that, yes, we've seen lots of digital health company scale, lots of exciting stuff in the employer world. But for me, my litmus test is seeing actual change um, on the front lines in the hardest hit clinics and the most vulnerable populations, I think is is pretty dramatic. And I think something that uh, is, is certainly notable, um, at least in the time that I've been in healthcare. Yeah. Can I, can I yeah, offer please. the the alternative yeah. view, which I'm sure you've yeah. seen as well, right? Which is sure. that in my primary care clinic, I think a lot's not changed as well. Um, 
you know, maybe certainly for the triage of COVID patients and COVID testing, yes. Infectious disease testing, yes, that's different. Avoiding some in-person visits, yes. But at some level, when I zoom out, I see kind of the same infrastructure. And I see a real risk that we kind of, you know, we end up with the same set of interventions, the same workflows, the same EHR patterns and processes. I'm still calling pharmacies to figure out if meds are covered. You know, like I'm having a little bit of um, uh, some observations that are different, I would say, from mm-hmm. yours in terms of dramatic change, really feeling palpable on the front line. Is there a, yeah. is there a kind of an antidote to that that, uh, <laughs> that, you, that you think can help keep us in the, in the fast-changing world of drawing EHR? I mean, I'm not sure how many situations we're going to be able to have clinics you know, get grabbing EHR data to, to effectuate change, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, no, I share both. Look, I think my baseline is that healthcare doesn't change. And so I think for me, like I'm saying, the fact that I'm saying it's changed more the past year than any other year, uh, maybe the most industries would be extremely uninteresting, but for us, I mean, I, I think it's pretty notable. Um, but you're right. Look, it, we're in a catalytic moment. That's why the second, I think, comment is it's we're in a, I, I think we are in a once in a century opportunity to reinvent healthcare. The reinvention has not happened yet at all. Like, and I think that's true in my clinic, but it's also true in digital health, right? I mean, it sort of, um, I know a common analogy people have, right, is, you know, it, you know, oh, digital health, it's like banking, it's like banking. And, and, and I always say, okay, yeah, it's like banking because you, you used to have a brick and mortar bank and then, you know, you had a drive through and then now you're, um, you know, you, you can bank on your phone. But for a lot of people, when it comes to when they use telemedicine, it's like as if you went to a bank and you, you know, swiped your card and you uh, said you wanted to withdraw 20 bucks. And the first thing it asked you was, how much money do you have in your account? <laughs> <laughs> or, you, you go to deposit a check and after you deposit it in your, uh, in the bank, it says, can you please go ahead and send a fax letting us know that you deposited money, right? Like that. So even from a digital health telemedicine perspective, I think that's where we are today. And so we're certainly far from done. I just think it, it is a moment though, where healthcare has changed to a degree and more importantly changed culturally, uh, which I can talk more about that I think is setting us up for the reinvention, but it's certainly not going to happen on its own. Do you think that there's a, um, uh, you know, I, I think at this point, to use your banking analogy, I think we have a, a pretty clear understanding of what an excellent bank experience should be. Um, do you think there is sort of agreement and alignment when we talk about reinventing healthcare, what the the correct or ideal end state should be? Or is that still in and of itself a work in progress? Oh, Not only God. like the how we get there, but what is the actual destination? I could not love that question more. Um, and like, you know, I'm not one for like vision statements or like, you know, you know, vision, I'm, I'm more of an executor, but I think we're absolutely missing a common vision, a common frame of reference. Like, so the example I gave, the whole reason I wrote this book is to Julie's point, you know, I certainly didn't need uh, another job, uh, especially in the middle of a pandemic. But so early on, as you remember in March, like the first month of the pandemic, everyone's like testing, 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 how can we get testing? And with a colleague of mine, uh, Kavitha Patel, who a lot of you guys know, uh, we just wrote a really simple op-ed. We said, couldn't people just test themselves at home for COVID? Um, and that way, you know, people could do it from home. We're not, you know, uh, burning resources in the healthcare system. And it was insane. I mean, on one end, the op-ed we wrote literally went viral because I think everyone was obsessed with testing at that point. And so we were in, you know, USA Today and 
the Rolling Stone magazine. And it was like, <laughs> when can we get this? When can we get this? But I started working like 100-hour weeks trying to get it passed at the FDA and with, with the house and a bunch of other places. And it was just fascinating, the pushback we got. I mean, people were saying stuff like, well, oh, uh, you know, uh, we can't have patients test themselves, we'll over-test themselves. And I'm like, yeah, because people just have nothing better to do other than sticking Q-tips in their noses, <laughs> right? Um, and, and by the way, paying, you know, $50, $100 for that. The second pushback was, oh, well, uh, patients can't do this themselves, right? Like classic, right? When I, and I still remember when I was a med student, you know, a nurse sort of showed me how to do one of these and they said, okay, the next one you do by yourself, go to the next exam room, right? It's not that hard. And then the third pushback was, well, how can patients interpret this, this test result? And, and actually somebody uh, in a very formal setting said to me, how can a doctor who hasn't, doesn't know their patient for over 10 years give them the result of their COVID test? That's literally what someone said. And so wow. it was in that moment that I kind of realized that we do lack that vision, Jorge, to your point. I think we don't have a sense like, yes, data, yes, technology, yes, AI, yes, home, yes, virtual, all that stuff. But how is it all supposed to come together? Um, I think it's something that we, we're sorely missing, and I think w we need to co-create that vision. And you've, to some degree, you've painted that vision, a version of that vision, at least in your book. Um, you have this great three-part framework that I thought was super pragmatic, um, where you say, you know, the future healthcare delivery system will be distributed, so outside of the four walls of your traditional hospital-based setting. It will be digitally enabled, um, so continuous, personalized, etc., and it will be decentralized, which is, you know, away from, quote unquote, big med into the hands of the individuals who are closest to the patient and obviously the patient, him or herself. Um, and, and I think if you kind of parse out like some of the points that you're, you just made and what you just described about our terribly ossified and, you know, risk averse system and, you know, just people who are sort of ensconced in the way that we've done things in the past and can't really imagine um, this new type of future. You know, it's really interesting to think about, you know, kind of what what's realistic, um, you know, to your point about, um, you know, what can we re where can we really affect change and, and what's reasonable to expect, um, you know, sort of the incumbents to do with re with regards to, to making this movement towards these these different models. So actually, you know, one question that comes to mind as you guys are talking, especially as you and Vanita are talking about sort of, you know, you guys both work in, um, you know, sort of established uh, health system type environments. And, you know, every hospital across the country right now is scrambling to reinvent itself. And, you know, the, the common mantra is that, you know, no matter what, hospitals are just too big to fail. You know, they are often obviously the source, the largest source of job security in their local communities. So there's always going to be sort of like a political air cover dynamic to um, that, that kind of artificially protects their position in the market. But, you know, that they are also the vessel through which, you know, so much of our care delivery infrastructure flows uh, and payments flow, certainly. Um, so, you know, inevitably, there needs to be something that sort of gives in, in that whole equation. So what what do you think is the biggest form of change that we will realistically see amongst hospitals specifically um, in the next few years as these more distributed care models play out? Yeah, no, it's it's a really, really important question. I mean, I think, first of all, just to, uh, just to double click on the sort of how I think about distributed is, is, yeah, the idea that care happens where health happens, right? Increasingly at home, in the community, um, and it's not to the exclusion of hospitals. That's really important. That's why I don't, I typically don't prefer the home, the word home base or virtual. Um, it's, it's distributed. It's recognizing that it's all connected and that often care will start at home or in the community, but for many people it won't end there. And so there's definitely a role for hospitals. Um, but you're right. I mean, that's, it's a very, very different role for a hospital or health system, right? I mean, I think right now, 
the direction that they're largely going is right. They're building vertically and they're building horizontally, right? They're 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 sort of uh, expanding dramatically into primary care, into geographies, and at the same time, they're continuing to build sort of their massive, you know, cancer towers and and cardiovascular towers, and that is going to come head to head with this whole idea of distributing care, which is really saying. I think something, Julie, you talk about a lot, I think, more eloquently, which is this idea that, you know, there's there's things that hospitals are really, really good at and that that's what we should use them for. And we shouldn't use them as these sort of monolithic one-stop shops for everything. Um, but that's going to be a major transition, right? When you have that kind of fixed asset, you just have to put um, bodies into it. I saw that when I was at Evelyn and, and we worked all around the country to build, you know, uh, hospital um, accountable care organizations or provider health plans like that is a very, very difficult equation financially to manage. Um, and so that is going to be a big challenge. I, I do think that you're going to see kind of two different types of hospitals, right? So you're going to see some that are going to continue to execute on this strategy, which is basically a monopoly strategy. Um, and then I can think you're going to see others either because of, I think you have forward looking leadership or because you have certain competitive dynamics who are going to start to say, huh, how do I actually make myself much more, you know, acid light? How do I leverage, um, what the hospital can do really well, but actually use it to expand our footprint. Because for them, as they move to value-based care, I mean, look, you can save, you know, a couple bucks here and there by being more efficient in the hospital. But if you can move hospitalizations to the home, you can just, you can take 30% of the cost out. Um, and then the second thing I think the smart hospitals are going to do are going to expand their reach geographically, right? Like suddenly now, without having to build a physical plant in all these new geos, you can actually take you know, your staff and your equipment and your tools and actually sort of hub and spoke it out to the community. And then over time, you can actually even just leverage the actual expertise and logistics that you're building. So kind of like Cleveland clinics built, you know, takes any cardi, a lot of cardi, uh, cardiac thoracic surgeons around the country can kind of have the Cleveland clinic banner and then they give them a bunch of IP and, and Cleveland clinic gets, um, you know, uh, gets fees off of that. I think you're going to, I think we're going to see some hospitals that move in those kinds of directions. Well, Shantan, you know, often whenever there's big change, there's winners and losers. Uh, do you think that's going to happen here? Or do you think there's a scheme where just, uh, you know, even cases like hospitals, which are going through so much challenge right now, that they find a way to win by transforming themselves? Is, or, or do you think there will be some people who really, uh, you know, don't make it uh, to that final point that we're talking about? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I mean, you know, when we talk about how, you know, 18 and 90 percent of healthcare, uh, you know, GDP is healthcare and that, you know, 30, 25 to 30 percent of healthcare is waste, like that waste is jobs, right? that yes. waste is yeah. whole companies. And so I think, look, if, if we as a country decide and, and it's really a decision, if we decide that we do want to meaningfully decrease the percent of expenditure on health, um, that I think that definitionally it's going to come at the cost. Uh, of some people. And I think that's why you have to be thoughtful about how you transition those kinds of economies, you know, very similar to moving from coal to clean energy. I think it's a similar kind of transition, but it hasn't been as clearly articulated or thoughtfully thought through. Um, there is another school of thought that says, hey, we and even that coal to clean energy one is not easy as it is. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> or, or, you know, and, and, and I think, but there is a school about the things, hey, 18% of GDP is not bad. It's just the value equation. Like as we move to personalized genetics and, and all that kind of stuff, that there's going to be significant um, advantages to investing like that. But yeah, if we're going to drop it, it's going to have to come from somewhere. So. Yeah, and, and that's also, a great point. Oh, go ahead, Ray. No, I was just saying, that's a great point because I, 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 you know, I think the argument that 18% of GDP is, is, 
is actually an incredible investment if it if it's resulting in an incredibly healthy population, right? Um, and so the question becomes versus versus trying to take the number down to some number that we would think is correct. If we were at least getting eighteen percent GDP value, maybe people would be happy. Is kind of your thought, Jorge? Or exactly. at least it would be it would be an improvement over where we're in now. Yeah, it's actually interesting because um, I was thinking about this the other day. Like the the founders of Stripe, when they launched their you know payments infrastructure product, like their mission was actually to increase the GDP of commerce by enabling more and more players to participate in the economy and you know spin up products, et cetera. And you know, think about like the the version of that in healthcare. It's like that we are like the one industry that doesn't like growth. Like we never talk about revenue growth. We talk about you know how do we reduce our spend. And, um, you know, because so much of that is waste and if we were getting anything close to the value that we perceived is appropriate for the amount that we're investing, then, you know, I think it would be a fundamentally different equation. But because we don't, um, you know, that's why we're sort of, you know, in this in this cycle of needing to reduce cost such that we can get to a place where we can start to in- invest more and, you know, hopefully get more value out of it. So that's the um, the delicate irony that we live in. Um, but I thought your comments, um, Shantanu, were super interesting. And uh, we, we had a conversation a few weeks ago um, here in Clubhouse about this notion of cloud kitchens and how that, that notion could apply to hospitals where you, you know, sort of almost like the unbundling motion of, of hospitals that we today mostly talk about as a threat to hospitals could also be a huge opportunity for those hospitals to actually unbundle themselves and, you know, take the componentry of of what they excel at and um, and package it in different ways to to make their their models more accessible to other players. So um, that that sort of corroborates a lot with with what you were describing there on, on the hospitals opportunity as well. Does yeah. that mean that hospitals become the do hospitals just become like the next you know shopping malls where like forget about like having to like reduce you know cost it, like just physical square footage won't be as as required or is that is that a, is that an overly simplistic way to think about this when you talk about decentralizing health moving away from the monolith uh you know moving beyond the four walls of the hospital you know do we have too much re- like literal hospital real estate or or are those two things uncorrelated um no i think you're, i think they're i think you're right they're related i mean i think again i think uh, look i, I think at the starting point you know, has to be, you know, what makes sense for, for patients. Right. Um, and, um, you know, I'll just to bring, you know, an example, uh, like literally 10 days ago, I got, I have two little girls, uh, a seven and a five-year-old and my seven-year-old, uh, 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 two Saturdays ago was having trouble breathing, uh, which she's never had before. And she just was coughing like every 30 seconds for almost, you know, an hour and a half, two hours and we tried everything right like the, as parents you know like even though we're doctors we sometimes do silly things we did like the vix we we just like a south asian thing we you know uh <laughs> you know took her outside where it was raining to kind of get some fresh air we you know tried everything we could and we're like well what is happening we started getting really scared and 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 those are the moments where healthcare decisions happen right um where you decide you're staring at your kid and you're thinking geez what do i need to do here right do i need to go to the er do i need to go to the hospital should i just wait this out and that's a part of the healthcare system. Like you talk about footprint or real estate, but like that's a part where there is no footprint. Like healthcare starts today the moment you walk into a clinic or you walk into an ER, you walk into a hospital. But for my wife and I, who you know happen to both be physicians, like even for us, like staring at her that night, like that's where it started for us, right? And and that's 
And that's the whole idea of distributed is, is how are we supporting people in that moment? Because we can always look at data and we can say, oh, well, this many people go to the ER unnecessarily. And like, yeah, but that's true post hoc, right? A priori, when you're a scared parent, you're looking at your kid, like that's not how you're thinking about it, right? No one wants to go to an ER and wait 10 hours and like be poked and jabbed and be yelled at, right? They're doing that because they don't really know where to go. And if we don't start solving for that problem, I think, you know, we're, we're going to miss, we're going to miss the opportunity to really move outcomes forward. Yes. And actually to that point, so let's shift to, um, you know, kind of like what needs to happen then in digital health for, for that to be a reality. So you advise the FDA, Shantanu, and um, when it comes to things like consumer facing digital health tools that could help in exactly that scenario, like, you know, assume that you're not a married couple that happens to be two doctors, but you're just your layperson um, who, you know, needs help figuring out what to do with their kid. Um, there have been many, many studies on the performance of things like AI chatbots that enable this kind of self-service triage to really help reduce unnecessary visits to the ER or even just um, traditional clinic appointments. And, you know, they've shown a, a very wide range of outcomes. You know, some of them claim better performance than doctors. Others, you know, fail to do so, um, you know, by, by a long shot. Um, based on the, the work that you've done, you know, whether with the FDA or just otherwise, what is, you know, kind of the right gold standard that we need to, to think about when evaluating these, uh, like the safety and efficacy of these digital health tools? And, you know, how far are we away from, from this being truly something that we can get out there in the market in a, in a responsible way so that, you know, people can have that, um, that upfront guide to, to really, you know, make, help them make the, the best quality decisions as well as cost-effective decisions? Yeah. Uh, so a few thoughts. I mean, I think the, fir the first is, I think the FDA needs really a reframe. I, I, so often when they're evaluating, say, a digital health tool, they're comparing it to seeing the doctor, right? That's the base case. And I think the reality is for far too many Americans, and certainly my patients, is the base case is no care. And so I think we need to start looking at it that way and really understanding not just efficacy sort of in a perfect Petri dish, but effectiveness in the real world where you have 20 to 40% Americans don't have a primary care doctor or where, you know, a significant portion of the population are uninsured and where, you know, clinic availability is is low on the weekends like I faced last weekend and, and, and in the evenings and such. And so I think we need to really rethink really what the baseline is uh, that we're comparing to. I, I think the other one is more from an enterprise perspective is like, look, I think this idea that Mark Sendak and other people at, at Duke and other places have advocated for of, of sort of package inserts, like, look, Yes, the FDA should have a role in regulating some of this, but some of it is just bringing transparency into what it is that I'm buying, right? So just like you want to know what's like in, when you buy, uh, you know, whatever, a box of cookies, you want to know what's in it. Similarly with AI, what we need is a lot more transparency about what data was this thing built on? Like what population? Was this done in Eastern Europe or was this done with a mix of people on the south side of Chicago, right? Like, um, uh, and I think really being able to provide transparency into that data so that you can en en enable decision makers at the enterprise level to decide how they want to use those tools. Again, integrating into an overall care model is the direction that I think we we, we need to go. Uh, rather than sort of the gold stamp of approval like a drug, like yes, no, I, I don't think, you know, digital health tools work that way. Or even just a confidence interval to know like for a given patient how well it might work. That would go a long way. I mean, because it's uh, knowing the data is one thing, Having a, a probably AI methods really have to be pushed to not just predict an answer, but predict where they fail. And I think that's well within the possibilities of what they've got. It's just uh, probably not part of the standard practice. No, I, I completely agree. I think that gets to also this sort of false trade-off sometimes is we're like, oh, well, is this 
Is it self-service or is this human-led? And and I think what we need to move to is a model of facilitated self-service, right? Like, it, it's like if you're doing your taxes on TurboTax or something, right? You can start doing it yourself, but as you start mm-hmm. to get into edge cases, that is really easy to bring a human into that interaction. Uh, like that to me is the right implementation can operational can model. So you're, you're getting leverage, you're getting accessibility, but at the same time, like you're not looking for it to be a black box that tells you yes, no. What you're trying to understand is how do I manage, almost like how do you manage risk or uncertainty at every step of the process? And at what point do we need to bring more and more expertise and human expertise into it? Yeah, no, I like that TurboTax analogy. I mean, that's obviously how you scale, right? Absolutely, yeah. Um, how far away do we? I mean, you you made the um, the statement that you know the FDA has to kind of upgrade itself or you know think differently about this space. And um, you know, meanwhile, you have hundreds of, of startups getting you know kind of spun up every week um, that are you know trying to implement this. How long? How far away are, do you think we are from having sort of a stable model for this space? And do you think it will be like solely the FDA, or do you see others you know stepping in to kind of play that? that media function um, as far as um, qualifying, you know, the use of, of various digital health apps? Oh, man, the crystal ball question. It's a tough one. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I think of it more, Julie, honestly, as a normative question and a positive question, right? Like, I'm like, what do we need to do <laughs> to get the FDA to that place? Because I don't know, left on their own, I, I don't have any insight as to what the velocity is right now for them to get to that. I, I more think now about, okay, how do we partner with them in new ways. I mean, I think part of what I've seen, at least personally in the past year is, you know, the, the feds and folks in government, you know, they're very willing to have conversations and 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 to, to get the answers. Um, a year or two, three years ago, I actually helped the AMA build their first um, policy in AI, believe it or not, the AMA, the American Medical Association, mm-hmm. you know, which you think would be completely antithetical to everything they stand for. Like, it, it's possible, but I think folks that have the expertise, like, need to get involved on some level. Uh, otherwise, I think if we're just waiting, uh, it just may not happen. Did you see anything, Shantanu, in your work um, at the global scale that causes you to think that like, we're behind, actually, like here in the U.S., and that there's like a leapfrog opportunity in other countries? Oh, I love that. I mean, so my time at the World Bank, it was mind blowing. Like, you know, so when I was, uh, I got a chance to visit China, for example, uh, there's a system called We Doctor, where 80% mm-hmm. of doctors in China, which by the way, is like a million people, <laughs> like 80% of doctors in China are on one platform that have like multiple tiers, like of telemedicine, it's not just one tier so that people can get increasing level of expertise. In India, they have 800,000 ASHA workers who are community health workers that can, you know, uh, dispense, you know, anti-diarrheals and basic medications. And of the 800,000 at the time that I was at the bank, 300,000 of them were outfitted with a mobile app from Demagi to help them do those diagnostic decisions, track supply chains, et cetera. Um, it was just astounding. And then I'd come back, I remember I'd fly back to the US from these trips and, you know, there'd be some paper in the New England Journal of Medicine that, oh, we did a 200 person pilot, you know, <laughs> uh, in Boston, <laughs> wah, wah. The health worker thing. And you're just like, oh, come on. Uh, oh, another great example specific on AI checkbox is the work that Babylon's doing with the Rwandan government uh, through a national insurance scheme, giving everyone access to, um, to an AI enabled telemedicine service. Um, so yeah, no, we are, it's interesting, you know, I think like we've seen with COVID, right? Necessity is the mother of invention and they've been far more inventive than us. Um, and I don't, know, I don't know what the implication of that is for us over time, but there's probably you know, some, some interesting ones out of that. 
Yeah, I had a chance to meet with the wee doc team, uh, wee doctor team. Oh, wow. In past Very life, cool. and no, it was yeah. hilarious because they're like, you know, I was like, well, how how could we work with you? And they're like, you know, we do pilots, and it's typically like, you know, a hundred million users or something <laughs> like that. And you're just like, wow, <laughs> this is just a completely different order of magnitude, multiple orders of magnitude um, than what exactly. we see here. So absolutely, there's scale, and then there's, I mean, I think the other thing that um, we've observed in, in some of the companies that we see in like, you know, Latin America or you know, even Africa, where um, there's no like EHR sort of chassis, right? Like there, there's just like not the the burden that we have in, in our care delivery system around the need to even integrate with systems like that. And you tend to see more, you know, sort of consumer driven, um, you know, data liquidity. And, you know, that that's one, one question that I always ask uh, here, like here in the US, all of our, our data interoperability, you know, policies are largely oriented around how do you give the patient the right of access to their data and how do you enable the patient to initiate the data liquidity? Um, is that, do you think that's like the right orientation to make all this work? Like, you know, because it's almost this um, sort of uh, antithesis of like, you know, we, the patients are not at all the people who are making the decisions about our care. And yet, you know, sort of the system is relying on us to be the tip of the spear of how our data moves around the system. Do you think it, it do you think that's right? Or do you think like actually it should be the providers who are ultimately you know, driving that adoption of interoperability solutions because they're the ones actually making these decisions. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Well, first of all, I, and I'd love to trade notes with Benita on this, but uh, I'll just tell you that, you know, one of the things during the pandemic, I'm sort of transitionally getting your question, but one of the things during the pandemic what blew my mind was, you know, when we relaxed the restrictions around HIPAA, as you know, like, you know, we sort of suspended HIPAA when it comes to uh, like mobile messaging, FaceTime, WhatsApp during the pandemic. I mean, for me and my safety net clinic, like we can't afford, you know, uh, telemedicine software or secure messaging. And even if we did, uh, I think a lot of our patients wouldn't have been able to figure it out. Like the whole reason we were able to still be a lifeline for our community was because we could use FaceTime, WhatsApp. And what was interesting is initially the clinic, because they knew it was not secure, they, they trained all of us doctors to, to mention that to my patient, to, to our patients. And my patients could care less. Right. I mean, for them, like, right. there's like the two choices were like, no doctor at all, or I use this thing called FaceTime and WhatsApp where I'm exchanging very personal things with my family. I'm exchanging maybe banking information. Like, there's like, okay, so what, doctor? So can we just move on and start using this? And it really made me realize that I think we make a lot of assumptions on behalf of patients. And that, you know, I think our whole approach to HIPAA, which is, by the way, like one of the words in there, the P I think is portable, uh, which is like the opposite mm-hmm. of what HIPAA's done is I think, I think it needs to really be completely rethought. Um, and, and look, I think on your question, ultimately, I think patients, yes, it's patients' data, it's patients' lives. Patients need far more agency in the system than they do today. Um, I think with the right permissioning systems, it shouldn't then inhibit providers from sharing data, right? Because in an ideal world, I as a patient would say, hey, these are the use case I'm cool providers sharing my data around. Here's the ones I don't. And so in the moment, I don't need to necessarily get queried in, in order for me to share that data. But to me, ultimately, this it's patients that need to decide, but it doesn't mean that they have to decide every single micro decision of sharing. To your point of providers oftentimes in the heat of a moment are doing things on behalf of a patient. But to me as a patient, we should be able to set that. But And I think if you do, most patients are going to be pretty permissive is, uh, you know, at least my anecdotal evidence through the pandemic. Yeah, can you give us like an on the ground view of like what what does the what does interoperability like look like today in a primary care clinic that you work in? Like, are have you have you ever had patients you know ask you to um, to get access to their data? 
Are you proactively asking your patients to, um, you know, ask their previous providers or other providers who are involved in their care, you know, for access to their data? Like how, what, what's kind of the reality on the ground with regards to the state of the state uh, on interoperability? <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 a hot mess for sure. Agreed. <laughs> um, <I mean, laughs> you can quote me on that. No, I mean, look, there's a couple places where it's actually been transformative. So one of them is in our region. We have actually a really great um, health information exchange um, called CRISP, um, which you know shares data across the sort of the Chesapeake, that's the Sea and CRISP region. And it's been pretty amazing. I, I remember I had, and we need to see these patients, but like I had this patient, which is like the, the classic patient that just like gives you heartburn as a doctor, right? So she walks into clinic, of course, for a 10 minute appointment. And, you know, she like, she looks in her thirties and she's like stumbling into your clinic room and you're like, you don't look well. And then as I'm sort of talking to her, I notice she's got a huge sort of scar on her neck and I started asking her what happened. And she says, I was in the hospital. And I said, oh, well, what happened? She couldn't tell me anything. And soon she starts taking out her phone. She's showing me pictures of her on a ventilator with all these catheters splayed around. And I was like, oh my God. I was like, is there someone I can call? And she's like, no, I don't have anyone you can call. I was like, you don't remember anything that happened? No, I don't remember anything that happened to me. Right. And you're sitting there like, oh my goodness. Right. And, and that was an example where I turned to my nurse and I was just like deer in the headlights. And she's like, well, why don't we check crisp? And she literally mm -hmm. got on. And within 30 seconds, I was eyeball deep uh, and elbow deep maybe into this person's entire discharge summary and record in the hospital. And it helped me see exactly what medicine she should have been on. And look, it wasn't interoperable to the point where it's not writing that data to my EMR in a way that's queryable by me, but Hey, compared to where I was before, like I'll take that, I'll take it, I'll take it and run. And, and it made a huge impact for that patient. Um, another good example is, is, um, is, is opiate prescribing. I think we've done a good job of that. It is true that if I see a patient for pain meds, I can look up pretty quickly what are all the pain meds that they've filled recently? And obviously that has had huge implications on the, on the opiate crisis, but man, but it's still a far, far field from, I think where we are in digital health and certainly where all of us would want to be. So, so Shantanu, I'm, I'm, I'm curious to ask you a really tough question. And uh, I'm in particular, like we've talked about this you know, potential for the future. Who do you think are the enemies of the future? Like who do you think are holding us back? Who do we need to, work to help to move forward the, the best here? Or, or do you think it's not necessarily just even a few bottlenecks? Is it, or are we all enemies of the future to some degree? Oh man, there's gotta be a feature in Clubhouse where I can scroll quickly and see everyone who's on here. You know, I mean, look, I, I'm going to sidestep the question a little bit. I, I think that I, one of the things that I, I've learned and I hope we all learn during this pandemic is is that look, healthcare is really is overly regulated. Payment models are, are Byzantine, right? Um, yes, we need better um, policy around HIPAA and stuff. But I think what I also realize is how much is actually in our control, right? Like, so we talked about the idea of drive-through testing. Like, there's no regulation needed for us to have done drive-through testing, right? The idea that you take someone who's coughing and sneezing, sticking them in a waiting room. Uh, where they're coughing and sneezing on each other just to see a doctor for five minutes to swab their nose is absurd. Mm -hmm. And yet that's how we've been doing it for decades. And look, even in a fee-for-service world, drive-through testing makes sense. It's not a payment model thing. There was no regulation. Like We just needed to, you know, to, to, to lead and say, hey, there's a better way to do this. Um, and that's increasingly where, where, where my head's at. Um, another good example in sort of the accolade world is, you know, when I joined prior to the pandemic, 
immediately said, hey, we need to do something much, much bigger in mental health. Like mental health was core to Accolade from the beginning. We had, um, uh, you know, we had behavioral health specialists as core part of our model and it's, they've been amazing. But I said, we actually have to get people access to therapy and psychiatry. And we want to do it in a way that actually delivers outcomes and and cost savings. And I thought, well, of course, employers, you know, are increasingly self-insured. Of course, they're going to want um, something that delivers outcomes. And what really surprised me, it it literally surprised me (laughs) because I hadn't been in the employer space in a while. I was in the World Bank all around the world. Came back and I said, when I looked at all the companies out there, I couldn't believe that that they weren't really selling outcomes. What they were selling was... SLAs. They were saying, hey, we'll get mm-hmm. you a therapist within X hours or a psychiatrist within X days. And look, don't get me wrong, that's really valuable. Um, but we sort of came out and we built a brand new model. We adapted something that's been around for 30 years called a collaborative care model at a University of Washington and, and co-created that with uh, folks at Ginger. And, you know, and we got traction for that. And, and again, it didn't require policy. It didn't require anything. You already had a plan sponsor who was incentivized to do something like that. But, you know, for whatever reason, I think we sometimes just follow each other or follow the norm rather than sort of stepping back and saying, you know, is there a better way? And look, there's a business model there too. So I don't know. I kind of think about that interstitial space, honestly, about all the decisions we make, small and large, all of us, everyone on this call um, in different places and our ability to step up and say, hey, there's there's a right way, there's a better way, like we're going to do it, we're going to build it, we're going to figure out, and that's on us. Fair enough. Does that, to, just to piggyback on that, um, you know, you alluded, your sort of, you know, layman's view is that the practice of medicine is, is you know, fundamentally paternalistic, uh, perhaps overly paternalistic. Um to sort of get to a better place, to a better future, do we have to take the pater- the paternalism out of medicine? And can we take the paternalism out of medicine? And probably should we take the paternalism out of medicine? Wow, that's deep. What, what's I'm just curious, what's the question behind the question? Because, uh, well, one of the questions behind the question is that, you know, there is... The, the, the healthcare system is very heavily regulated, I think for lots of appropriate reasons, but that regulation results in rules that some of which we've touched on in this conversation that don't necessarily make all the sense in the world. Like you should be able to test yourself. You should be able to get access to, you know, I always remember like when, you know, people got in trouble because, you know, companies got in cr- trouble because they were going to give people their genomic data back. And, you know, you know, God forbid people have access to their genomic information Um, that I assume was all pretty rooted in a sort of paternalistic, you know, do no harm approach to medicine, which, again, very appropriate in the vast majority of cases. But there are situations where that just creates, um, you know, stasis where we probably don't need it. Right. Um, So I'm always curious is like the path forward. You kind of have to get to the root of the problem is regulation isn't the, may not be the problem. Regulation may actually, overregulation may actually be a symptom of just a, a pre, uh, uh, you know, presumption that, you know, you have to protect, we have to protect patients from themselves, right? That mm-hmm. sort of overarching patern- paternalism. Yeah. So maybe it, goes to, it also goes back to what we were saying earlier about like, you know, comparisons to the fintech industry where that's like the fundamental difference between doing banking, right. And, and getting healthcare is, like we know what we want when we're going to the ATM and asking for a service, whereas in healthcare, you know, the vast majority of the time, I as a consumer don't actually know what I necessarily need. Um, 
And, you know, and the whole system is designed around that. I always use the example of like when you go to a hospital website, you know, the fact that I as a consumer am being asked to choose whether I want to go to the cardiology department or the pulmonology department, like how am I supposed to know that, right? And so like so much of the entry point into healthcare is it, it as to, you know, to this point, it's like it, it assumes a certain information asymmetry that um, is baked into everything that we're talking about here. So, you know, maybe the question is like, to what degree is that just a reality? Like, is that just the law of physics of this whole space? And therefore, there will always be this sort of um, hierarchical relationship that we have with our clinicians and with the healthcare system? Or are we starting to see pockets of opportunity where we can kind of level the playing field and give people more individual um, uh, sort of agency? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, it's just helpful to hear the color. And I know I, I completely agree. And I think the paternalism in medicine is, is, uh, needs to go. <laughs> I mean, I think very, very simply. And I think you're right. It's not just individual behaviors. It's, it's systemic. You know, I think going back to what we learned during, during COVID. So like, just this, this is something else that I've been thinking a lot about is during the pandemic, like we all became like much, much better equipped as patients, right? Like, think about it. Like we started realizing the deep connection between our daily behaviors, like hand washing and our health, which is also true for things like diabetes, right? Like we all have had the experience now of trying to figure out where to get a test, where to get a vaccine. And, you know, a lot of us figured it out. You know, we historically would rely on our doctors for that. Um, I've seen patients come to clinic far more organized because during the, for a period of time, they either couldn't or didn't feel safe coming to clinic and for years, I mean, patients come to, to clinic and I say, hey, you know, what medicines you're on? Like, oh, I don't know. It's in your EMR, it's in your EMR right? And I say, well, yeah, but you should know what medicines you're on too, right? And during the pandemic, people had to get organized because they had to fill <laughs> their own meds. Um, think about the fact that for the past one year, we've been almost like, you know, so many of us have been reading about a health problem every single day. Um, people have learned sensitivity specificity. I had this janitor come up to me the other day and I asked him about the COVID vaccine. And he said, <laughs> he said, uh, he said, yeah, I'm not sure about getting the vaccine because, you know, I've looked at the phase three clinical trial data from Pfizer and it didn't include enough uh, African-American patients. But on second thought, I think I am going to do it because the V-Safe program is going to ask me for my demographic information. I definitely want to have more information for on about patients like me so I can help other patients in my community. Right. Like, wow. I mean, awesome. you know what I mean? Like we've all but but that's, you know, it's not everybody, but we've learned a lot. Right. About all these different aspects. And I think to some degree, it's been a crash course in not just COVID, but crash, crash course in medicine and public health and, and individual decision-making that I think is, is, is something that's been missing. And I think that I, I hope that we've built some muscle memory that can actually enable us as patients to, to be more empowered. Um, because look, I mean, having gone through med school, like there's nothing you can't learn. You don't, you're not born out of the womb knowing all this stuff, right? <laughs> like, and, and, and I think certainly for the things that matter most, if you look at the research on shared decision-making, it's really about understanding your preferences. Like ultimately when you're making those decisions, what matters to you and being able to articulate those. And then, and again, in that shared decision-making way with you and your provider and they're saying, yeah, but the, the, you know, like, again, this is like the COVID vaccine. Well, COVID will do this for you. And the, and the patient goes, yeah, but I'm a, a single mom with three kids. If I'm out for two days recovering from the second shot, who's going to take care of my kids? Oh, well, that's a good point. Well, are there folks that you might be able to get? Actually, my mom's about to get the vaccine. Why don't we let her finish her first two doses? And then I'll get mine because if I get really sick, my mom can come over and help take care of my, my kids. There are three, three of them under five, right? Like that's how it's supposed to work. Um, and, and I think that we've moved in that direction, but again, it's just a catalyst. We need to keep pushing. I sort of think there are multiple layers at which 
patients want guidance versus choice. And if we kind of go back to the banking analogy, it's almost as if in order to be healthy, you actually like pretend you need to have some very complex portfolio of both active investments plus, you know, capital and diversified mutual funds. And you actually need something so complicated that you do need a financial planner to achieve this thing called health, which is maybe more complicated than, um, you know, than say wealth or say financial health. Um, And so if you do need that financial planner, you do want clear guidance too in the right circumstances. And I think sometimes in the current digital health world, I I wonder if we're at risk of over-empowering patients without the information that they actually need to make great decisions. And so I think if I had to bet, I think there's also going to be a trend towards giving companies credit for actually doing not paternalism, but healthcare guidance navigation, to use the accolade term, in a smart way. And if you actually do it right and you give patients the right guidance at the right time, you'll get credit because I think it's something that's missing today in a healthcare system where we're rebounding on kind of giving patients more agency. So I don't know. That's no. I think they want guidance at some level and then they want agency and how to execute that guidance, right? I need to pick which ATM I want to go to. I want to pick mm-hmm. how I get there. I want to pick how I drive there. I want to pick, you know, I want a lot of choice on the execution of the plan, but there's a certain, um, there's some truths in medicine that I think we don't do a great job of communicating clearly either. No, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think Julie, you talk a lot about the unbundling of, of hospitals, but I think about the unbundling of primary care. And I think, you know, the core role of, I mean, Vinita, you said the term advocate, right, to advocate for our patients, right, to to understand them as, as human beings, to um, have understanding of the data and some of the science, but to use all that for the betterment of that person um, uh, and truly be in their corner supporting them. Like, I think that's, you know, I mean, honestly, that's why I came to Accolade and, and but but it's something that is why I went into primary care, you know. But I think just like you know, healthcare has to be unbundled and reimagined. I think primary care, unfortunately, it's really hard for me to be that advocate for my patients. And so um, I think the idea of having someone else, plus all the data that shows that you know having uh, uh, this sort of homophily or concordance, having someone be your advocate who's actually more like you than sort of that person that, you know, that sort of hierarchically uh, person who comes from a different community and background than you may actually be really valuable from an equity perspective, too. Shantanu, in this, in this equation, um, wh- where do you think there's room, if, if any, for uh, self-pay models? Because, um, you know, everything that we're talking about, you know, to some degree assumes that there is a, a third-party payer that is kind of covering, you know, access to these services for on, on behalf of the patient or the consumer. Um, but increasingly, we're obviously seeing, you know, much more tailwind around the notion of paying out of pocket for direct access to these services outside of the, you know, traditional carrier or traditional um, employer-sponsored benefit um, construct. Um, wh- where do you think that that has legs versus not? Yeah. Um... It's, yeah, it's a, it's a great point. I mean, you're, there are definitely things that patients should be able to consume themselves, um, you know, and, and I think that they can vote with their feet and identify services that, that work really well for them. I, I think my challenge really is this sort of outcomes and scale part of it, you know, like, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, the, the tendency to sort of serve the, the worried well or people that are already uh, fairly privileged 
I think is really real. I mean, we've seen data showing, you know, this is great work from like Amitabh Chandra and other people showing that even if you give someone a $5, $10 copay on their medication, medication adherence drops. And so I think even though a lot of these self-paid tools are really cheap, I do worry on the margin um, for certain populations that that, that price, uh, even however low it may seem to you and I, um, may actually lead to poor health choices. So I think it's definitely part of the equation. Uh, I definitely do just, just think about um, the implications in terms of outcome and equity. Yep. Fair, fair point. Awesome. Um, I can't believe the hour's already gone by, but, um, <laughs> but it has. And, and so, you know, one last question, and you alluded to this uh, in your earlier response, um, and this relates to, to Accolade, because you guys had a very um, recent exciting announcement about um, the intent to acquire Plush Care, which essentially takes Accolade from the care navigation business into the actual care delivery business, and um, which I think is a super exciting move. Um, and it's it's representative, I think, of a general move that we've seen in the employer benefit space uh, towards um, you know the combination of navigation with care delivery and more vertical integration of these digital health services as a replacement for what you would you know typically get through traditional health plan products. So you know if the if if you want to characterize kind of the the um, the, the various eras of employer benefits as you know era 1.0 was defined by navigation with Accolade, obviously, as a, a pioneer in that category. Um, and then 2.0 as this integration of primary care and navigation. Um, what, what do you think 3.0 looks like? What's, what's next on the horizon for specifically for the employer-sponsored benefit channel beyond navigation plus primary care? Oh, boy. Uh, without getting myself in trouble. <laughs> yeah, that there's question. Raj in the audience, so he's listening carefully. <laughs> um, well, first of all, I mean, I think, look, I, I don't think the answer is to recapitulate the wall garden that we have in brick and mortar and do it virtually, right? I, I think the the idea that, hey, w- that there's one place that, you know, uh, where, where we can serve all of your needs, uh, I think is not ultimately in the best interest of the patient. Uh, and frankly, I think the cat's out of the bag and, and patients have demonstrated over and over again, they're going to get care where they are going to get care. And, and so I think the question much more for me is, is how do you ultimately deliver value, right? How do you, for each person, get that person to the best place, right? That, that best place for that person might be Oak Street. It might be an LGBTQ clinic down the street. It might be no care at all. And, and I think that, um, that is sort of the way we're thinking about, you know, primary care and plush care is, is I think pretty different. Um, and I think it's much more aligned to look, we just want to get people the best answer. We don't have a physical asset that sort of creates, um, a need for us to drive volume into it. And, and I, I think going back to sort of the beginning of this conversation and the, the article you mentioned, uh, at the start of the hour, uh, I think that you know that's what employers are looking for. What keeps them up at night is is are are all my are my people getting what they need, right? To be the best selves, and and that really starts to translate to is each individual person getting what that individual person needs, and that you know what we've seen is that for each person that's going to be different, and so so a solution that can help. Uh, drive each person to the best decision and ultimately get the best outcomes for the population. That's where it's, that's where I think we're all headed. Incredible. Well, Shantanu, it was a sincere pleasure to have you here with us. Um, amazing comments, and I'm sure everyone in the crowd enjoyed this. So really appreciate you making the time and um, look forward to all the great things ahead for, for Accolade, for the work that you're doing on the front lines, and, um, and certainly uh, your book and, and hopefully more to come on that front as well. 
Yeah, thank you so, so much. Thanks, Julie. Thanks, Jorge. Thanks, Vanita. Really enjoyed the conversation and, uh, and super excited to keep collaborating. Awesome. And for those, Thank you so much. Yeah, for those in the crowd, unfortunately, we usually do an after party today just by virtue of our schedules. We unfortunately will not be doing that, but um, come back next week for, um, for another session and, uh, and hopefully we'll have time to hang out um, the next time around. Thank you, everyone. Have a great night. Good night, all. Good night. Thanks, Good night. Anthony.